And Father, we pray in Jesus' name now that you would accompany the teaching and preaching of your word with the power of the Holy Spirit come down from heaven. We recognize, Lord, that there is no power in the individual. The power is in the Spirit of God and in the gospel of God. And so we cry to you, Lord, that you would come and make this ancient document live and produce something in our hearts and lives today. That we might bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to our 13th and final expository sermon in the book of 2 Timothy. It's been a great, great book. There's so many riches in this particular book. And when you come to chapter 4, verse 8, really Paul is done with the letter. But he still needs to tie up some loose ends. There are certain things he needs to wrap up. He's told us in chapter 1 that Timothy needs to guard the gospel. In chapter 2, he said that Timothy needs to suffer for the gospel. In chapter 3, he told him that he needs to continue in the gospel. And in chapter 4, he tells him he needs to preach the gospel. And all the way through, he's been giving these instructions to Timothy. What I want to do is go back with you through this letter and show you some of those instructions. If you go back to chapter 1, He says there in verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He's instructing him to kindle the gift that God has given to him. In verse 8 of that same chapter, he reminds him not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of Paul, his prisoner, but to join with Paul in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Later he instructs him to retain the standard of sound words which he heard from Paul. And then he says in the very next verse, verse 14, he instructs him to guard the treasure which has been entrusted to him, the treasure there being the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, he instructs him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, he instructs him to entrust the things that Paul has given to him to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He instructs him in verse 7 to remember Jesus, excuse me, verse 8, to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Later on in that chapter in verse 14, he instructs him to remind the church and to solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless leads to the ruin of the hearers. In verse 15, he instructs him to be diligent, to present himself approved to God as a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Very next verse, he instructs him to avoid worldly and empty chatter. It only leads to ungodliness. In verse 22, he instructs him to flee from youthful lusts and instead to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In verse 23, he instructs him to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Verse 25, he is to gently correct those who are in opposition to the truth. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, he instructs him to avoid men who hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied the power 
of that godliness. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he instructs him to continue in the things that he has learned and become convinced of. And the things he's talking about are the things of the sacred writings, verse 15, or scripture, verse 16. Continue in the scripture, Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 2, he instructs him to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He instructs him in verse 5 to be sober in all things, to endure hardship, to do the work of an evangelist, to fulfill his ministry. So he has been instructing him over and over and over throughout this letter. He's passing the torch on to this son in the faith. But he has a few personal final instructions to give Timothy before he's done. And you might think, as, as Kelly was reading earlier, you might think, I wonder what significance this has for us today. It seems like kind of a hodgepodge of various things thrown together at the end. doesn't make a lot of sense together. Is it really even something that we should spend time teaching? Well, I believe it is. I believe there's some really rich nuggets tucked away in this final section of the book of 2 Timothy. And we're going to look at those nuggets. What I see as I go through the letter of 2 Timothy, and especially this last section, what I believe we're seeing there is something about the heart of Paul. Have you ever wondered what went through his mind and what was going on in his heart as he was sitting in a dungeon waiting to die? I have. And I think we, we get a glimmer of what's going on in his emotions and his thoughts and in his heart, his, his affections and his desires as he's waiting for that time when his head is going to be severed from his body and he's going to be brought safely into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the dying emotions of Paul today. As he's waiting to die, what's he feeling? What's he thinking? And there's five of them I want to show you from this text. Number one, Paul is feeling lonely for fellowship. Start in verse 9. He says to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. In verse 21, he says, make every effort to come to me before winter. Now, ships didn't travel in the winter in the Mediterranean Sea. It was just way too dangerous. In fact, the shipping lanes were closed from November to March. And Paul is telling Timothy, if you wait until winter, it's going to be too late. Paul knows he doesn't have that much time left. Several weeks, maybe a month or two. But he he really, really wants to see Timothy before he goes to be with the Lord. And we know that because Paul repeats the same request twice. At the beginning of the section in verse 9 and at the end of the section in verse 21. They're bookends to this final section of his letter. There's something really stirring in Paul's heart. He wants Timothy with him during this time. Paul is lonely for human companionship and fellowship and friendship. I bet we would be too if we're sitting in a dungeon knowing that we're going to be facing the chopping block in a matter of weeks. It would be nice to have one of our friends to be with us and to support us and to encourage us. Now, why does he want Timothy to be with him specifically? If we keep reading, I think we get the answer. He says in the next verse, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Now, who is this Demas? The name Demas 
appears three times in our Bible. The first one is Colossians 4.14. Paul writes there, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Then in Philemon, uh, verse 23 and 24, Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, a couple of interesting things to notice about this. Where was the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon written from? Anybody know? It's written from prison. Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Demas is there with Paul in prison during this first imprisonment. And notice who he is associated with there in the book of Philemon. Paul associates him there with Mark, Aristarchus, Luke, and himself. Now think about it. Demas is hanging around with Paul, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament letters. He's hanging out with Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He's hanging out with Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's spending time with the guys who wrote 60% of the New Testament. Would you say that's a pretty privileged position to be in? What a blessing. Just to be a co-laborer, the inner circle, Paul's trusted associates. And that's who Demas is. He's one of those guys. But we read of him, Paul says, having loved this present world, he has deserted me. The word deserted is the very same word that Jesus used from the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why have you deserted me? So Jesus was deserted on the cross, but Demas then deserted the Apostle Paul in Paul's greatest need. He was there with him in his first imprisonment in Rome, but by the time we get to his second imprisonment, Demas was gone. Now, notice verse 8. He says in verse 8 that there are those who have loved Jesus' appearing. I believe Paul is deliberately contrasting that with what he tells us in verse 10. Demas loved this present world. There are those that either love the appearing of Jesus Christ or they love this present world. Those who love this present world, they will forsake the gospel. They will forsake the church of Jesus Christ. They will walk away. But those who love his appearing will hold fast to Christ and his church and his gospel. Well, unfortunately, Demas was one of those who forsook Paul and forsook a bold stance for the gospel in Paul's dying hour. You see, things had changed between the first imprisonment and the second imprisonment. When Paul was in prison the first time, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, he, he had it pretty good. He was in his own rented quarters. And he was welcoming all who came to him. And he was preaching from sun up to sundown. Paul was loving it. He was a preacher. And so, yeah, he, he didn't have freedom to leave. He was confined to his own rented quarters. But he had a lot of freedom to speak the truth of the gospel. Well, what do we find when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4? Paul is in his second imprisonment. He's lost his prison, his freedom. He's in a dungeon. He doesn't have the freedom now to preach to people. He can't... Uh, welcome people to come to his cell. Things have changed dramatically from the first imprisonment to the second one. In fact, it has become so dangerous to align yourself with the Apostle Paul that everybody is forsaking Paul in his hour of greatest need. We know that because in 
Verse 15. No, verse 16. He says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And he says in verse 11, Only Luke is with me. So why was Paul feeling lonely? It's because everybody was gone. Only Luke was was sticking around. Paul was there facing his second defense that was going to happen any time. And he had no one to support him, except for the Lord, of course. And the Lord did support him. So Demas, he says, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Demas is an example of a man who starts off really well, but ends badly. I hope nobody in this room takes after Demas. Oh, the privileges that he had. The privileges that we have. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have it broadcast on radio, on websites innumerable around the world. We can listen to any program we want to, day or night. We live in a very, very privileged time, folks. We're like Demas. We have access to those who wrote the scriptures all the time. But will we start off so well, be part of the inner circle, a co-worker, a co-laborer, and end up forsaking the work of the ministry, I hope nobody will end up that way. Starting off loving his appearing, and then something happens where we start to love this present world. And the things of the world become more attractive to us than the things of Christ. And we end up leaving and forsaking Jesus Christ. May that not happen to any of us. So, Demas has forsaken him. Then he goes on to say, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. We don't know anything about Crescens. This is the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. We do know about Titus because Paul wrote a book to this man, the book of Titus. Titus was a frequent traveler with Paul, and there's no blame attached to these men leaving. Paul probably had given them ministry errands to run, as he did often to his his co-workers. So there's no blame attached to them not being with Paul at this time. And then he says, only Luke is with me. When I think of Luke, I think of our golden retriever, Murphy. Faithful to the end. You know, certain dogs are just known for faithfulness. And that's what Luke was like. He was faithful to the bitter end. He didn't desert Paul. Everybody else did. Luke stayed. He was there until Paul was executed, more than likely. So only Luke is with me, he says. And so we know about Luke. Luke joined Paul's missionary band on his second missionary journey. We know that because in the book of Acts, it starts talking about we. We journeyed from here to there. And so we, Luke never says, I joined the band, but we know that because he's the author of the book. He was on the second journey. He was on the third journey. He was with Paul when Paul went to Jerusalem, where he was arrested. He was with Paul when Paul went to Rome. He was with Paul in his first imprisonment, and he was with Paul in his second imprisonment. He was a true blue friend to the very end. And then he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he was useful to me for service. Now let's back up and remind ourselves of who John Mark is. John Mark was a young man, a youngster, when the church 
got started on the day of Pentecost. In fact, he was also a privileged guy because the church met in his home. We know that from uh, Acts chapter 12, there was a prayer meeting going on when Paul, or excuse me, Peter was in prison. He was to be executed on the following day, and the church was meeting in John Mark's home to pray that God would save Peter. In fact, God did answer that prayer. So how would you like to be a youngster growing up in the household where the church is always in your house? They're in and out all the time. You see Peter, and you see John, and you see all the apostles, and the, the seven that were appointed, and the elders of the church, and it's just part of your life. Well, so John Mark was like that. Later on, when Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, they took John Mark with them as their helper. But do you recall what happened? Mark deserted them partway through that first missionary journey. We're never told exactly why, but evidently things got rough. Evidently he was having a difficult time on that missionary journey. And so he split. He went back home to his home in Jerusalem. And then when they set out on their second missionary journey, Paul didn't want to take John Mark. Barnabas did because... Barnabas was John Mark's uncle. And so there was this disagreement between the two of them. And it was such a sharp disagreement that they actually separated. Uh, Paul takes Titus and goes one way. Barnabas takes John Mark and they go another way. Later we find out in the book of 1 Peter that Mark uh, is traveling with Peter. And Peter calls him his son. So there's a very close relationship between Peter and Mark. And then 20 years later, we read that Mark is with Paul in prison in Rome, his first imprisonment, and he's with him there. At this time, he's not with him any longer, but I love what, he, what, I love what Paul says. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. Bygones have been bygones by this time. At this time, Paul says, hey, Mark's useful. He starts off pretty sketchy, doesn't he? Pretty rocky. But he had matured into a strong disciple of Jesus Christ who is useful for service. And have you ever felt like a failure at one time or another? Maybe you've let down the church. You feel like you've let down God. That uh, you're not useful for anything. You can't be trusted. Why? You just feel like you want to quit. This gives us hope, doesn't it? Because John Mark was a quitter at one time. He was a loser at one time. But he had been redeemed. God had restored him. God had matured him. God had made him to be a man who was useful to service to the Apostle Paul in his dying hour. And he can do that for all of us. And then he says, But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now, Timothy is in Ephesus as Paul is writing to him. He says, Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. I've sent him to where you are. Now, why would he be doing that? Well, he's carrying the letter. He's writing 2 Timothy. He's going to hand it to Tychicus. Tychicus is to journey. They didn't have post offices. They didn't have airmail. He had to travel to Ephesus and deliver the letter there. And then he was to take over Timothy's duties so that Timothy could come and be with Paul. So Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. Everybody's gone. Demas is gone. John Mark's not there. Tychicus is gone. Crescens is gone. Um, Titus is gone. Only Luke is with me. Come to me, Timothy. I need you. I need your companionship. I need your friendship. You know what this reminds me of? 
It reminds me of just that human inborn longing that all of us have deep down inside. We're hardwired by God to need other people. There is a, a social human aspect to our lives. We need others. We need fellowship. We need encouragement from others. In fact, in the beginning, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. He made him a helpmate. He made him a wife. People need each other. And Paul was not above that. Paul was not... Sometimes we think, well, Paul, you have the Lord. What else do you need? We, we just have this super spiritual attitude that Paul doesn't need anything except for Jesus. Well, Paul was a man of flesh and blood. He was like you and me. We shouldn't put him up on this pedestal as being somehow above everybody else on the face of the planet. Paul was a man. Paul needed people. And it teaches me that we need each other. We need fellowship. And we're just kidding ourselves if we say we don't. I'm fine, just me and Jesus. That's all I need. You're kidding yourself. You need the church. You need the body of Christ. And I would encourage all of you to be committed to a local church. Get involved in that church. Uh, Go shoulder to shoulder with that body. Make disciples with that church. Bear the burdens of others and they'll bear your burdens. And use your gifts and your time and your talents and your treasure. Invest in that body. That's what God desires for His people. So, Paul is lonely. He's feeling loneliness for the body of Christ. And that teaches us that we need each other. Secondly, Paul's not only feeling loneliness at this time, he's feeling restless to learn. We learn that from the next section where he says, When you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. First of all, he says, When you come, bring the cloak. Now, the cloak was this huge coat. It was like a poncho. It was like a raincoat with a hole in the middle for your head, and it would double both for a cloak and for a blanket at night. And I imagine it's probably fall. Paul is starting to feel the the chill in the air, the the damp in that dungeon. He's going to it's going to be really cold in just a month or two. Please bring the cloak which I left with Carpus in Troas. Now what in the world does that have to do with? He says, which I left at Troas with Carpus. Scholars have conjectured on this. And some of them believe that Paul was actually arrested in a house church meeting at Carpus's home in Troas. In the middle of the meeting, the authorities burst into the room. They arrested him, and it happened so suddenly that he had no time to take his belongings with him, like his cloak, like his parchment, like his books. He was just hauled off. Now, if that's the case, we can understand why he says, okay, when you travel from Ephesus to Rome, go by Troas, go by Carpus's house, get the cloak, because I'm going to need it, it's getting colder, and get the books, especially the parchments. Now, that's what I want you to zero in on for just a moment. Bring the books, especially bring the parchments. Now, what would the parchments be? These are scrolls. My, I think we can be fairly certain about this, that the parchments would be Old Testament scripture. Now, think about this. This is the guy who has been raised to the third heaven to see visions which were not lawful for him to talk about. This is the guy who's had personal visitations from Jesus Christ himself. This is the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament letters. 
This is the guy who's going to die in a matter of weeks. And what's he want to do? He wants to read the parchments. He wants to continue to grow in his understanding of God and his understanding of the Word of God. Now there's a lesson in that for us. If the Apostle Paul was restless to continue to learn, I would say we ought to be restless to learn as well. Anybody here restless? You just want to keep on learning the Word of God? I hope that's true of all of you. Till my dying day, I want to learn more and more about God and Jesus Christ. I don't want to die and be ushered into heaven and everything be kind of fuzzy because I don't know what it's all about up there. Don't you? Don't you want to kind of get acquainted with God before you arrive in heaven? Paul just wants to get to know Jesus more and more and more. And if he needed the parchments, and if he needed the books, so do we. Folks, I want to encourage you to become readers. Students. It's a good thing to become a reader of the parchments. A reader of good, solid Christian books. So, the Bible tells us that we are to meditate on the Word of God day and night. So you should be in the Word of God every day. You should be memorizing Scripture regularly. And besides that, I want to encourage you to read good, solid Christian books. The good ones. The classics. Pilgrim's Progress. How many have read Pilgrim's Progress? You should make that a companion of yours, a good friend of yours. Besides that, I would encourage you to read books like John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Those of you who like to get into theology, it's a great, great book. Still a classic. I would encourage you to read some of the Puritan writings from the 1600s. You can get little paperbacks called the Puritan paperbacks. A couple hundred pages. Thomas Watson's one of my favorites. Get his All Things for Good. Great little book. Delve into the Puritans a little bit. In addition to that, read some of the biographies of the great men of God that have preceded us, like George Whitfield. There's two volumes by Arnold Dalimore that have really radicalized my life. I've read them twice, all the way through, 1,200 pages. Wonderful, wonderful, stimulating books. Read the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. Read the, the sermons of Charles Spurgeon. Read the works of Jonathan Edwards, his sermons, and also his little book called The End for Which God Created the World. Beautiful. Read the writings of A.W. Pink and D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and contemporary writers like John Piper and uh, Wayne Grudem and D.A. Carson and John MacArthur. These men have something to contribute to you. Avoid the fluff. And if you read mostly for entertainment, I want to encourage you to shift a little bit. Read more for your soul. Read more to learn. Read more to grow in the faith. Balance scripture reading with good, solid books that are going to help you and stir you to be all you can be for Jesus Christ and to draw you close to Him. That's what we find from Paul. He's not only feeling loneliness for fellowship, he's feeling a restlessness to learn and to continue to grow in his understanding. Number three, he's feeling concerned for Timothy. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Now, first of all, who was this Alexander the coppersmith? We have a hint from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. This is what Paul says. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan 
so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So what do we know about this Alexander? Well, he was a blasphemer. He'd made shipwreck in regards to his faith. He had rejected faith and a good conscience. And we understand that Paul had disciplined this man. He had turned him over to Satan so that he would be taught not to blaspheme. Well, let me use some sanctified conjecture again. We're going to have to do quite a bit of that in these last, this last section because we're not told all the details we would like to know. So I'm going to be presenting some conjecture. You test it and see if you think it holds water or not. But here, we, we learn that Paul exercised discipline in this man's life. And evidently, he was enraged when Paul exercised discipline. And, and so he wanted to do Paul in. He wanted revenge. And so he did Paul much harm. Now, the word for did, he did me much harm. In the Greek, it means to display. And the word often means to lay out information against somebody. When he says he opposed our teaching, the word literally is he has opposed our words. So, The NASB has translated it as teaching, but it's literally words. He opposed our words. Well, what words? It could be his teaching that Alexander was contradicting and spreading strife in the body of Christ. But it also could be Paul's words of defense before the court. In other words, that he opposed Paul's defense when he was arrested. Alexander may have been the informant that did Paul much harm by giving false information to the authorities so that they went to him and arrested him on trumped-up charges. They took him to Rome. Alexander may have actually gone to Rome and testified against him. Of course, this is sanctified conjecture. But he might have been the guy that did Paul in and took revenge because Paul delivered him over to Satan so that he would be taught not to blaspheme. Interesting, interesting guy. Notice that he's also mentioned right after Paul talks about his cloak and his books. And if it's true that Paul was arrested out of a house church meeting and he had to leave his cloak and his books right there, it would make sense that that would trigger in his mind the reason why he was arrested. It was at Alexander. Timothy, be on guard against him. He did me in. He got me arrested. Watch out for him. He's up to no good. He knows that you're closely associated with me. He knows that to get to me, he'll try to get to you. And so, Timothy, watch out for that fellow. He'll be after you. And what I see in all of this is Paul's concern for Timothy while he's in prison. You'd think that Paul would be having a pity party, you know? Look, I'm in this dungeon. There's no toilet. There's no window. There's no fresh air. There's no light. It's horrible in here. He could be throwing himself in a pity party, but instead, he's concerned for Timothy. No doubt he's praying for Timothy, and he's writing to him, watch out. I'm warning you about this guy. You see, Paul was a pastor at heart. And a pastor is one who's protective of the flock. He's watching out for those people that are within his spiritual sphere of influence. He... uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian elders and he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says to the shepherds there in Ephesus, Be on guard for the flock. Watch out for them. Protect them. 
And Paul had that same concern for his son, his treasured son in the faith, Timothy. That teaches me that, a, especially as a pastor, to have that same protectiveness for the flock. When somebody is coming and starting to influence someone, someone in this body with false teaching, I'm going to be in your life, folks. <laughs> I'm going to want to talk to you. I'm going to want to sit down with you and open God's Word and try to help you avoid heartache and injury from listening to people that are just going to lead you down a wrong path. And if you start being influenced by a false lifestyle, a sinful, wicked lifestyle of somebody else, I want to be in your life to help you avoid that, to avoid going down that road. That's the kind of person Paul was. That's the kind of person we should be, right? We should be in each other's lives, helping each other to be sanctified, to be growing in holiness. So Paul was feeling lonely for fellowship. Paul was feeling restless to learn. Paul was feeling concerned for Timothy. Paul was also feeling confident in Christ. And I love this. I love this. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood with me. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every every evil deed. Verse 22. The Lord be with your spirit. What does Paul have on his mind sitting in that dungeon? Jesus Christ. Right? And what is he feeling about Jesus at this moment? Well, let's take a look at it. He says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. He mentions here his first defense. Now, the way things worked in the ancient world is that you would have two hearings in a court of law. The first one was to establish the charges against a person. The second defense would be to find out whether you are either guilty or innocent of the charges that were being brought against you. Well, Paul has had the first hearing. They've had this first defense to find out what the charges are leveled against him. And even in the first defense... Everybody deserted him. Everybody backed out. The stakes are too high. Just too dangerous to associate with Paul. But he says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He stood with me. Everybody else deserted Paul, except for Luke. But the Lord stood with him. And that reminds me of Jesus' own words. We have Paul in the book of Hebrews saying, That the Lord will not forsake us. The Lord will always be with us. He will leave us. I mean, He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And in Paul's difficult hour, the Lord stood by him and the Lord strengthened him in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. Now, two words we need to understand. Proclamation and Gentiles. Proclamation. Paul's brought before this august body of people, the imperial judge, these people who were putting him on the stand to find out whether he is guilty or innocent. They're trying him. And what's on Paul's mind? The proclamation. What do you think he's talking about? He's preaching the gospel, folks. (laughs) He's given a chance to defend himself, and rather to spend all of his time to defend himself... The passion of his heart was that the proclamation might be fully fulfilled. And so Paul proclaims the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ to the judge, to the people that were there. He mentions the Gentiles here. 
It's got to be these Romans that were there in that court. The Gentiles listening to the proclamation. Now, if you were going before the judge and your life was on the line, do you think that you would spend all of your time proclaiming the gospel? What an awesome example Paul is to us, folks. What a bold proclaimer of truth. He's not so much concerned for his life as he is that these Gentiles would hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that ought to be our passion as well. Is that your passion? That God would speak through you to other people to know the truth of Jesus Christ? That the Gentiles might hear? See, Paul wanted to finish the course well. And he did. He wanted to finish that race. Keep the faith. Fight the good fight. And this is his final hour in which he is doing that. He's finishing what Jesus had laid out for him to do. And part of that was to proclaim to these Gentiles the truth of the living God. That Christ Jesus is the Savior for hell-bound sinners. And folks, you're hell-bound because of your sin. And He has come to redeem us. You're not too far from the, the grace of God. God can reclaim you. You must turn from your sin. You must put your trust in Him. He will save to the uttermost anyone who turns from sin and believes the gospel I'm presenting to you today. He, I'm sure it was something like that. So, in order that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And he says, I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. This is probably a metaphor for the jaws of death. I wasn't executed immediately. I was delivered out of these powerful men's sphere of influence. I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord was faithful to strengthen me that I might stand. And so Paul's feeling confident in the Lord because the Lord has delivered him. The Lord has strengthened him. Have you ever felt fearful when you knew God wanted you to speak to someone, but then you felt the strength of the Lord rising within you, and you stand up and you speak, and you don't know where that strength and that power is coming from? Is the Lord? Paul had experienced that so many times. He'd been walking with Jesus now for 32 years. And he had experienced that strengthening so many times that his confidence was way up here when it came to his confidence in Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, And the Lord will deliver me. And the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He'll do it. I have no doubt. The Lord can be counted on. He can be trusted I have found him faithful over and over and over throughout my life. And he says, the Lord will deliver me. He'll bring me into his everlasting kingdom. And he will deliver me from every evil deed. Now what do you suppose he was talking about? The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. There are two possibilities. He could be talking about the evil deeds of Paul himself recanting or denying Christ. When things got to the very end where it's either lose your life or deny Jesus, it's a possibility. But I rather think what he's talking about is the evil deeds of his persecutors who are going to execute a righteous man. The Lord is going to deliver me from every evil deed. Now, interestingly, the Lord delivered him from every evil deed by delivering him through every evil deed. The Lord did not take away his death. He went through death. He faced it. But the Lord delivered him through death and did bring him safely into God's heavenly kingdom. Praise God. He is faithful.
And then he says, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's not having a pity party in this dungeon. Paul's worshiping Jesus. His confidence in Christ produced worship of Christ. This dark, damp, cold dungeon became a place of fellowship with the living Lord Jesus. And I I imagine Paul on his knees as he's writing this letter, pouring out his worship to Jesus. To Him be the glory forever and ever. You don't see a defeated man here in prison. You see a victorious, conquering saint, don't you? And folks, we can have the same victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Saints throughout history have felt this way. Read the Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. And this guy would talk about staying up during the night, writing out a sermon every night and preaching it to himself (laughs) as he worships Jesus every night just to keep his sanity in prison. The Lord Jesus can be counted on. So Paul was feeling confident in Christ. And lastly, Paul was feeling love for the brethren. Look at verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Or the length of name is Priscilla and Aquila. Now who are Priscilla and Aquila? These are longtime friends of Paul's. Paul met them when he was in Corinth. They originally started out in Rome. There was a persecution against the Jews. They were expelled from Rome. They found their way to Corinth. And because Aquila was a tent maker, he and Paul found each other because they were both tent makers. And they became friends. In fact, they became laborers together in the cause of the gospel. Later, when Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila left with him. And they settled in Ephesus. Later, they moved from Ephesus back to Rome. And then they moved from Rome back to Ephesus. It seems like they never stayed in one spot very long. But what's really interesting about this couple is that wherever they were, you find the church meeting in their house. They must have had the gift for hospitality. Wherever they went, church, come on in. (laughs) Let's just worship Jesus together. And don't you love folks that have that gift of hospitality? We benefit so much from them. So Aquila and Priscilla, they were fellow workers, fellow laborers in the gospel. They were close friends and associates with Paul. And Paul is saying, greet them. In other words, say goodbye to them. I'm never going to see them again on this side of eternity. Say goodbye to them. And I can almost imagine a tear trickling down his cheek as he writes because there's this link of love and affection between him and his close workers over the years. And then he says, also greet the household of Anesiphorus. Who's Anesiphorus? Well, we've read about him already in this this book, uh, chapter 1. It says that Anesiphorus searched for me and found me and he refreshed me And he wasn't ashamed of my chains. And he says, and you know what services he rendered at Ephesus. So Onesiphorus was known as being a servant in the church at Ephesus. I mean, there in the church, everybody knew him. He was the first to volunteer. He was the first to show up for a meeting, the last to leave. He was just a servant at heart. And isn't it wonderful when we find people with that character quality in our body? Just servants. Wanting to serve the people. Love it. Anesiphorus was like that. But it's interesting to me that Paul doesn't say, greet Anesiphorus. He says, greet the household of Anesiphorus. 
And there is a couple of reasons why he may have said that. Number one, he, he simply may have been saying, greet Anesiphorus and his household, because Anesiphorus is part of the household. That may have been what he meant. But he also might have been saying that Anesiphorus is either arrested and in jail or he has died. So greet his family who've been left behind. We're not sure. We're not sure about that. But what we do know is that Anesiphorus was a man that Paul felt personally indebted to because when he was in prison and everybody else is deserting him, this man looked for him. He had to search for him. It wasn't easy to find him. And when he found him, he refreshed him. He did everything he could just to serve him. What a beautiful example of Christian service. Then he says, Eubulus greets you. Also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. We know nothing else about these people at all, except that they have Roman names, which tells me that these guys are probably Romans in the church there in Rome. Somehow they had found out about Paul being in prison, and they had made their way to him at one point or another just to show their support to the apostle. And so he says, okay, I'm going to send greetings from you when I write this letter to Timothy. I want you to note how much of Paul's life was poured into individuals. Look at this letter, starting in verse 9. Notice the names of people that he poured into. Demas, Crescens, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Prisca, Aquila, Anesiphorus, Erastus, Trophimus, and then all those folks in the church at Rome. Paul was invested in people, in individuals. Paul's getting ready to die, but he's leaving a vast army, a whole host of servants of Jesus Christ that he had personally discipled and mentored and trained and influenced for the gospel. You know, with the passing of Pastor Chuck Smith, I I thought of the very same thing. Here was a man who, when he died, he left hundreds of, of people whom he had influenced through his teaching and through his life. Many of those men God raised up to have powerfully influencing churches as well around the country, even around the world. You know, when I go down, I hope that I have other people that I'm leaving behind that somehow I've influenced for Christ. Don't you want to have that? When you get ready to die, wouldn't it be great to say, There's this one, and that one, and this one, and that one. They're going to be carrying on. These are strong men and women of God. They love Christ. They're servants of Jesus. They're they're bold for the gospel. They're workers and laborers. And the Lord has privileged me to be able to invest my life in them. That's what I want. And I want that for you too. What that tells me is that we need to be busy about the work of making disciples. Pouring our life into people. It's not just preaching to the masses that God wants. He wants us to be looking for people that we can draw alongside of ourselves. And whatever I've got of Jesus in me, boy, I want to give it to you. If I know a little bit more than you, I want to show you what I know. If I've learned how to study the Bible, I want to show you how to study the Bible. If I've learned how to memorize scripture, I want to show you how to do that. If I've learned how to worship Jesus through hard times, boy, I want to show you. You see what I mean? We want to invest ourselves in people's lives. And folks, I'm excited because that's starting to happen here at the bridge. 
We must have six or seven people now that are starting to meet regularly with younger believers to train them and to mentor them and to disciple them in the faith. With the goal that these people they're discipling will begin to do that with somebody else. A movement of disciple making is beginning to start here. What a wonderful, glorious thing that is. That's what Paul was doing. That's what Paul did in Timothy's life. That's why he said, And the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who what? Will be able to teach others also. So it starts with Paul, goes to Timothy, goes to faithful men, and then others also. There's an ongoing discipleship chain that just flows out of this man. May God use you. May he raise you up to be a strong disciple who will invest your life in younger Christians and make disciples. Amen. Let's remember what Paul is feeling again. He's feeling lonely. Folks, if you, perhaps even at this time, are feeling lonely, you don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed of that. It's a a normal human emotion. The Lord has hardwired us to need social outlets. We need people. We need friends. And that's why we need to commit ourselves to each other. Especially when we're going through dark times, difficult times. Paul was feeling restless to learn. Folks, I want you to have the same passion to learn as much of God as you possibly can. To become a reader and a student. Paul was feeling... What was our third one? Anybody remember? We just did that one. Confident, I think. All right, I'll tell you. Concerned. That's the one I missed. He's feeling concerned for Timothy, and the Lord wants us to be concerned for those people who are starting to be influenced by either false teaching or uh, evil lifestyles, that we would go to them and help them to escape the snare of the devil. We don't want those we love to fall into those traps. Paul is feeling confident in Christ, and folks, oh, how we need to be confident in Jesus. We can be. There's nothing that would cause us to be not confident in Him. If there's anyone in this world who can be trusted, it's our Lord. And out of that confidence, let's worship Him. And Paul is feeling love for the brethren. As he knows, he's saying goodbye for the last time to these people that he loves, that he's worked shoulder to shoulder with, that he's invested his life in. He loves them, feeling affection for them. And that should permeate the life of our church here. Affection and love, camaraderie, closeness, that God would knit our hearts together in love for each other. May the Lord do that for His glory and for the good of His people. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for showing us this morning the feelings that are going on in Paul's heart. And thank you for the rich instruction for our lives that we glean from it. We pray you would apply this message, Lord, to each heart here, wherever they are. Lord, you are the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Would you draw your sheep unto yourself? Would you build up their faith and their confidence in you? Would you make them true worshipers in spirit and in truth? Would you enable them to be true servants of the Most High? Have your way in this church and in all of these people, Lord. For Christ's sake, amen.